0: Hey guys. Due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata, colon, Podcast Guys Talking To Erratic Errata. So get hype! Podcast Guys takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk.
1: Good morning, faithful reader.
0: Welcome, fortunate seeker.
1: This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Erratic
0: Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Erratic is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil,
1: where... A historian. And a literature scholar. Tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as... What will Morroc do with Cat's munition? What's going on in Thalassina?
0: And is all this just tradition
1: the evidence continues to pile up
0: and so do the bodies
1: rust is the victory of sentiment over reason extract from the personal memoirs of dread emperor terribilis the
0: This is a really interesting chapter, if you ask me, because it can really be divided into... You know, I sat down, I prepared for this, and I had my opening spiel ready, and I was going to say it can be divided into two parts. But really, this is a three-part chapter, isn't
1: it? There's the explicit first part, yes, if you you separate that out. But yeah, that that gives you three pretty clear, distinct parts.
0: And what are those parts, my dear, dear interlocutor?
1: We've got... A Name Dream, where Cat sees Black and, you know, his band of good friends, just pals, sort of hanging out and planning for a big battle and wielding the massive power of Warlock to just make sure that uh, all of the magic is on their side, more or less. Cat wakes up, has a conversation with Ratface, a little bit of uh, character development here, a little bit of planning, that sort of thing. And then we have the beginning of the melee we have the battlefield we have things getting set up a little bit a little bit of background on how the melee begins and we get the approach of cat's first enemy in the melee and that's the chapter it's those those three distinct parts you get dream dormitory and battlefield
0: feeling misspoke. i thought it was the approach of cat's first ally
1: i when i said enemy i meant like in the strategic sense, not in this tactical. Obviously, they're best friends right now.
0: Morax a likable, though very ugly, guy.
1: Absolutely. And,
0: and Catherine is forced to actually make alliances and work with other people, because as she says in the fourth sentence of the chapter, from Black's perspective, given the dream, she says, there would be no drowning the superior forces in Goblin Fire this time. Like father, like daughter, the urge is there. The spirit is willing. But the supply chain is weak.
1: I sometimes wonder, or maybe I'm concerned that Price overuses Goblin Fire a little bit. So it's really nice to, to see this restraint on Black's part, even if the restraint is forced upon him. You can't you can't burn everybody with Goblin Fire, clearly. So good job, Black. Way to, way to keep things in line here.
0: Warlock's magics, however, are able to, I gather, scry the enemy position, which is not something we see very much of, this kind of offensive scrying. Typically scrying, as we see it, is a Zoom call. But Warlock is gladdened to succeed and then mocks their firewall. He says, a Wolofite warding scheme? Really? Nobody's bothered to use those since the Second Crusade. All blood and no finesse. And you have to give it to House Sahelion. They are definitely all blood, but since whatever time the Wolofite warding scheme was developed, they have also developed finesse. Nowadays, the heiress to that line, uh, who has a name of some kind, I can't quite recall, is absolutely all finesse, soaked in blood, and good for her, and bad for everyone else.
1: Extremely bad for everyone else, yeah, that's kind of her MO. But yeah, seeing this little glance into the past, not too far into the past, but before Cat's time, and there's specific Wolofite practices that are ancient and outdated, is... Very cute when we get to uh, the actual heist of Wolof to to know that everything there is so ancient that the warlock laughs at it and still gives uh, our I was about to use the word heroes gives our protagonists sort of a run for their money so it, that's a, a a fun little detail here.
0: Uh, what's happening here, however, my dear listeners, is that black is killing people in order to make sure that the current empress, who is not then the current empress, is then the current empress. And so they're going against the armies who support Nefarious and all their soldiers, all their mages.
1: And we get Black sort of discussing the strengths and weaknesses of High Lord Mawasi, who seems to be the the main foe of the knight. And sure, Mawasi may have been a vigilant man, according to Black, but Uh, Amadeus also tells us that the man's mages were subpar, and this is apparently because they couldn't stand up to literally the warlock. Uh, Sure, maybe their mages actually aren't that great, but it seems very unfair to say these regular folks who are doing their best and aren't particularly noteworthy are worth comparing directly to Trace's Best mage. <laughs> it's 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 a bit of an unfair comparison, I would say.
0: Yes, but what they lack in mages, they make up for in military prowess. And what Black has in mage, he also has a military prowess. No,
1: we yeah we we see Grem here uh, make a prediction that of course comes true when it comes to tactical deployment, and we get a little a, a little side comment from Black that he had yet to see. Grem's tactical judgment fail, and doubt he ever would. I really like this. Uh PGTE's orcs are very much what we expect from like fantasy orcs. They're big, strong, they do war really well, they're kinda scary, they're close enough to human that we as readers can relate to them, but far enough away that they don't that they're not just human with a coat of paint. So that's all great. The way that they are good at war is interesting because the Orcs that we see in power very frequently are aren't just ah uh, and it's the biggest brute of the bunch and he he or she rose to the top by punching out no they're brilliant tacticians or organizers or administrators or uh, you know charismatic in a way that they lead you know you've got Hawkram and Grimm and Juniper and it's it's cool that that's the angle that uh, e. e took with. Orc military prowess in the setting, and I I just really appreciate that because it's not one that you often see with the orc equivalent in a fantasy setting.
0: I agree entirely, and emphasizing a bit more the uh, pitfalls, perhaps, that these orcs don't fall into, or that which have become pitfalls, I suppose. I don't know if I'm going to hold Tolkien responsible for any sins ever because I'm not allowed to because he was the fantasy inventor. But you said it wasn't just the biggest, brutist orc around, but rather he or she, and it is he or she. Uh, I think we see even in settings that make real strides, so to speak, in gender equality, that do away with medieval tropes of, yes, and we're going to have every society have men do war and women do blah, blah, blah. Even where there's that kind of gender parity among human or whatever the enlightened races are. The beastial orcs or what have you often are consigned to this more primitive structure of patriarchy or sex division or what have you. And I think it's nifty that in addition to being allowed to be clever, even though they're also great brutes, the orcs are also allowed to be chill.
1: Chill is definitely how I would describe the orcs, especially
0: Nock. Okay, knock has been pretty cool, pretty chill. And the way you say that makes me suspect that there's going to be some, I don't know, counterpoint to that next chapter after an ogre breaks his arms and he starts to do a whole thing, which would be shocking to me. But that is neither here, because it is there. Black and Warlock and Grimm are hanging out fighting Chancellor's armies up north, and Militia is not even present. She's gone to Thalassina to talk the High Lady She's gone to Thalassina to talk the ruling high lady into supporting them. So Thalassina's in the big, right? Like,
1: Yeah, there's not really a question there. She's going there personally. And despite there being this ongoing civil war, specifically Militia is going there. So she's got, if not actual name power yet, since I'm not sure on the timeline necessarily, she's got lowercase name weight. She's got, you know... A militia reputation and skill set with her.
0: She has become story relevant and... Exactly. ...said something. Even if she can't necessarily plan to mind control virus in everyone she speaks to yet. And I'm not claiming she can't. She's still really hot. I don't know about you, but I will do whatever an attractive person tells
1: me. Exactly. That's what it's all about. If a hot person tells you to do something, you're kind of stuck.
0: Which is why I check out the profile picture of anyone who comments on our stuff before I decide. How I should react.
1: That's smart. I should start doing that, too.
0: Speaking of profile pictures, there's a cool detail here. Black fiddles with a coin as they discuss their plans. And this coin is called, quote, an old denarii with Dread Empress Vindictive's face on it. End quote. I'm hardly surprised that they're stamping their leader's faces on coins. But hey, look, they're stamping their leader's faces on coins and they don't necessarily do a whole replacement purge of them when a new dread tyrant takes the throne which of course would be deeply impractical but it's praise i can't know what they're doing about anything based on practicality
1: right, exactly it it would not surprise me to find out that praise replaced every coin when, every time a new emperor showed up but on the flip side you know you would only do that in extreme situations where you're trying to delegitimize the previous ruler which as far as i can tell praise doesn't the, the previous ruler isn't illegitimate they took the tower that's that proves their legitimacy so sure the was empress she no longer has the tower so she's no longer empress but she was and there's no reason to lie about that race
0: more than anywhere would absolutely not just make a reign or four disappear have forgotten years of history so Though the current chancellor holds the chancellery, he's a fool. Uh, Black says that chancellor made a mistake when he put a price on my head. And he did in a tactical sense, but also the name lore there. Whoever killed the Black Knight will be granted gold enough for a dozen kings as well as a noble title. Okay, if sure the Black Knight, sure Amadeus of the Green Stretch holds the name of the Black Knight, but you are absolutely legitimizing the name by giving him Really, by giving him a story. Any story. Black knights matter more if there's a story going on. There's apparently always a black knight, give or take transition periods. But until they're in a story, they're just accessory.
1: And story gives them weight, of course. And this specific story also does. If you put a wide-ranging bounty on someone's head, then you are... Pretty much explicitly creating an army of mooks to go up against this guy, which means he's going to shine. That's when villains are at their strongest, when they're fighting many enemies who are coming to take them. You know, this is is setting up Black to succeed and expand his influence and power and fame by, or infamy, by fighting off a horde of would-be assassins. This is very poorly done on Chancellor's end.
0: And so, in the end, Black decides to give them what they desire most. His head. But what does that mean? I don't know. I woke up in Rat Company's dormitory with a gasp. Have you ever woken up with a gasp, by the way? I don't think I've ever woken up with a gasp, but I also don't have nightmares, literally ever, so I don't...
1: I've, I've definitely woken up with a gasp, but it's a response to my surroundings, not the dream.
0: And just to expand the lore drop about my superpowers, I have never experienced brain freeze.
1: I guess what we're finding out is you just have a very powerful head, generally. But Kat wakes up... And I just want to take a moment. This is interesting to me that this dream was explicitly about the Black Knight. Not Amadeus, who we now know as the Black Knight, but then during the dream as the Squire. Cat, the Squire, is dreaming about the Black Knight. I, I feel as though the previous dreams she's gotten have all been Amadeus as the Squire. Am I wrong in thinking that? That really feels correct. That's it, interesting. The name dream is supposed to be the mantle helping the new bearer slide into the role, more or less. like That seems to be the general vibe we're getting here, encouraging certain courses of actions. But to, this is a direct personal connection. This is meaning that Amadeus is more important than the specific mantle he has at, at any given time. I don't know. It It's kind of weird to me that that's happening. I don't know how much to read into that or if it means anything other than perhaps that the mantle knows that Kat's transition will be into the Black Knight eventually. She's, you know, she's the squire of the Black Knight. I, I don't know. It, it's interesting.
0: I can offer two justifications. Great. One, the dreams tap her into the experiences of the previous mantle bearer rather than the experiences previously experienced under the mantle, which is to say, well, there's been no real squire since Amadeus, and therefore it's fair game. Or, and I think possibly more likely, it's the nature of the squire mantle to, if I may use the exactly wrong word, apprentice under somebody's experiences. And since Catherine is apprenticed under Amadeus of the Green Stretch, it's Amadeus's lore relevant under the eyes of the gods, or over the eyes of the gods, hopefully, uh, stories that are given to her to guide her. A squire learns from their knight, or who, to whatever they're squiring under, I wouldn't be shocked to find out somewhere in history there was a squire under the belabored physician, just because that's who was around.
1: I can, yeah, I can see that. That it's learning from Amadeus, that or that she's learning from Amadeus that she is. It's whatever experiences are relevant to what she's dealing with, which will probably tend to be squire experiences, just by the nature of the beast, but not that beast.
0: We haven't okay. right.
1: But here's another wrinkle uh i love wrinkles we so we've talked a little bit about the or a fair bit about the difference between the mantle and the person who bears it between the role and the named and in this instance that distinction i think is very important and very interesting because if there is a hard line between the two and the mantle is somewhat if not sentient, at least aware has some kind of intelligence driving it, whether that be the gods specifically or or creation itself or what have you. How does Kat's name know this story? How does Kat's name have this information to give to her? Black wasn't the squire at this point. The name of the squire, the role of the squire wasn't present in this scene that she sees. So where's this Coming from it's is it drawing directly from black now? Like, does the does the name reach into black to find memories of his that makes it? I don't know. This is that's just how much reach and power and temporal proximity can the mantle mess with.
0: Very good questions. I'd say let's keep an eye on this as we read further, but there's little to keep an eye on. Let's keep a vibe check
1: out. Let's keep a vibe check out and. Listeners, if you have any thoughts on this, it's a pretty, frankly, philosophical question, I think. I don't know that we get any hard answers, but if you have any, please let us know. This is really interesting to me.
0: Unless, of course, your profile pics are
1: unappealing. Naturally. But speaking of Kat's name and how she's interacting with it and how it interacts with the world, she she says that as she wakes up, this dream had been weaker than the last, that the connection was not as deep. Um, that she, when she woke up, she doesn't have the sensations of the dream like she has in the past. And she wonders if that's because her name is weaker or if this is intentional. And, I mean, to me, this feels intentional as part of the dream. As you are building your own story, you're no longer directly connected to the previous holder of the name. Assuming we're sticking with the idea that the mantle is the mantle and not attached to Amadeus directly. Previous conversation notwithstanding, more or less. Um, but it, it it makes sense. Kat's building her own narrative. She's making her own imprint on the mantle and on creation around her. She's not going to be as directly attached to the previous squire, you know, as she goes forward. It, it's just a cool detail that the dreams themselves are getting less directly impactful over time.
0: So less potent. Are Catherine's mages? She tries to figure out why she had the dream, what it's meant to teach her, and. She notes, quote, That warlock could break through scrying wards was an interesting tidbit I'd have to ask my Lieutenant Killian about, but I had a feeling it was related to his name. It was dubious at best my own mages would be able to replicate the feat. Yeah, so the thing is, Wokesa was really, really good, regardless of the name. Just as an apprentice, he became the sovereign of the Red Skies in defiance of the warlock. Break- names being able to break the rules a bit, it's a serious thing, but I'm pretty sure Wakesa of all people could break through Scrying Wards put up by pre Black Legions anyway, which I think would be worse than post black legions where Scrying would not be such a focus, except for specialized groups. I suspect pre Black Legions could be scary in unexpected ways because of the non standardization, even if it worked less well overall. But it's Wakesa versus people. Wakesa wins. <laughs> it's, it's And it's Wakesa doing it cat your people cannot
1: you're welcome it's a person whose claim to fame and literally their claim to their name was built on a personal specialization in connections you know between planes between realities between distances on the same reality and the other side of this is people who currently have to be able to do two things which is battlefield healing and a basic fireball Cat's hopes saying dubious, yeah. That that's a massive stretch. <laughs> Good thought, cat, but I don't think your name is trying to teach you a specific spell as a as a means of helping with this coming battle. Pat
0: grapples with this dream for two full paragraphs, not even particularly short ones, and she tries to figure out what they could mean. My head, Blackett said. That was where the memory ended. She grapples, she grapples, she thinks, she struggles, and at the end she says I came to the conclusion that this was not something I was going to figure until I was more than half awake. But right in the middle of it, on this, the eve of her battle against four other groups, she notes, it was one of the most famous engagements of the Civil War, the battle of the four defeats. So Catherine, you gotta use your enemy's weakness and bait them. That's it. it. I did it for you.
1: Wait, but if she does that, she'll be defeated four times, I think.
0: Yeah, that's where she shines. (laughs)
1: <laughs> true okay that's fair
0: four in ten of the soldiers in catherine's company are women that's slightly under the average for the college cool it's not yeah sometimes women are in the legions no, no, no. women make up about half the legions
1: thanks to a, a well timed defenestration yes but it's good stuff
0: and as she forces herself awake thus looking around the bunk thus acknowledging the sex ratio. She runs a hand along the ugly red scar the Lone Swordsman had left her. Cool! A very important moment commemorated by a scar from the beginning of her story. Surely this will be the thing that carries to the end that is a thing that... No, she'll get a different injury later and that'll be the thing that matters in the last battle. This is absolutely prologue stuff and it's going to go away after the first book or two.
1: Yeah, but it's such a cool scar.
0: Oh, is it cool. What's, what are its attributes?
1: I mean, it's described as being strangely sensitive and, you know, knowing where this came from. I am curious, is that a name thing? Did Are William's slices particularly long-lasting? Is it because he cut her with a special artifact sword? I don't know. It's just, it's one of those things where a guy who's good at cutting has a sword that's good at cutting and I wonder where the line is drawn between the two. I've
0: just had enough of these traditional stories. I want a story about a girl who's good at cutting. Maybe even a woman who is a sword, you know? That would probably be fun. And not be the worst character ever.
1: (laughs) You're right. It won't be the worst character ever. Her best friend is.
0: And now, listeners, it's time to light a candle, dim the light, and prepare for a segment we like to call Podcast Guys Talking Erotic Errata. There was a well in the plaza just outside. Easy to make out, even in the half-light preceding dawn. Someone was already using it, to my surprise. A half-naked rat-face pulled up the bucket and splashed his face with water as I approached. He turned when I got close, nodding a silent greeting to me. Do you mind? I asked, pointing at the bucket and scrupulously not looking at his muscled chest. It would be inappropriate to ogle one of my subordinates, I reminded myself even if it's very easy to imagine rivulets of water running down. Go ahead, he replied after flicking the water off his shoulder. You can imagine what happens, Neck. I know I like to. Sadly, EE e. did not. This has been Podcast Guys reading Erotic Errata.
1: This, this trope of chance meeting with the particularly attractive co-worker the, the night before the battle. All of this fantastic to just slide it in here and have it lead on to. So let's talk let's talk strategy. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's very cat to be extremely distracted. And it's just a fun trope to just kind of appear out of no, well, not out of nowhere. Ratface is very hot. But to, to just show up here in the middle of this chapter. Tragically, they do
0: talk about strategy and they're also racist. that's about all they do they discuss which templates of munition which munition templates the various companies have taken out and snatcher has taken a custom selection bright sticks and demolition charges mostly few smokers as well he's up to something and catherine in a position of authority here violates all standards set by hr and murmurs he's a goblin They're always up to something. And if that isn't creating a hostile work environment, then the fact that they're laying goblins into this place definitely is.
1: I was about to say, I'm pretty sure the goblins create the hostile work environment for sure. She's right. They are. They are always up to something. But on the flip side, come on, cat. Ease up. Speaking of flipping things around, do you want to feel pain? Pardon? Do you want to feel pain? No, but I do want to hear what you have to say.
0: So let's flip a tense. We learn Ratface's tragic backstory, and how he was the bastard son of a lord, but that was okay, but then there was a legitimate child, and now it got complicated. And father eventually decided to simplify the line of succession, and one night I woke up to a knife in my back. Well, we're going to get to flip this one around too, to future tense. Ratface gets assassinated later, it's really sad, and I'm not over it.
1: Yep. that's oh poor Ratface. Such a sympathetic, super hot, tragic story.
0: And you have to understand, even though he's really hot and he was wronged, I can't be too mad at his father. Because, uh, well, for the same reason Ratface (laughs) chose the name he did.
1: Yep, we find out that uh, Ratface's father, also incredibly hot because he looked exactly like Ratface does. Which we find out here is why ratface chose the name he did on enrolling in the legions and i have to say that is some frankly callowin levels of pettiness hey you look like your dad i'm gonna call myself ratface then because i hate my dad (laughs) it's very good
0: i know you meant that as a compliment but there's no one who would be happy to hear that comparison
1: (laughs) true following that wonderful reveal uh we get a jump cut and we are suddenly on the battlefield no explanation as to how we got here. No explanation as to how Cat got here. Cat has no memory as to how she got here. It's a mess.
0: For those of you who are not reading directly along with us, this transition really does merit a moment of reading, I think. I laughed. He cracked a much warmer smile. Come on, Callow, he said. Let's grab something to eat. Only a few hours left until they want us ready for the game, and I'm not marching to wherever the hells we're going on an empty stomach. I stood in the middle of a rocky plain with no recollection of how I'd gotten there.
1: It is, to say the least, abrupt. And uh, Kat takes a moment to take in her surroundings, figure out what's going on, and she's got uh, a cut in the palm of her hand, mostly healed, which has a strange sensation, which she describes as like a bee buzzing in the back of her head. This is, there's some kind of magic here. Interesting that we get not a smell or in a sense, but a, a buzzing, which is another, a pr- another perception in Cat's suite of magical detection abilities. Um, but she says it took her a moment to recognize the feeling. Blood magic. Great, she can tell what kind of magic it was based on the fact that there's a bee in her head, approximately. But she says recognize. Uh, has Cat been subjected to blood magic before? What is she wrecking? What's this feeling based on? What's this memory based on?
0: Is there a residual sensation from her resurrection earlier?
1: Mm, maybe. That that could probably be it, I suppose.
0: Content warning. The following section contains discussion about dental surgery. If this is something that bothers you, just skip 45 seconds ahead. You'll miss nothing of import. Just us talking. Oh, so, even then, I've been blessed not to be in too many situations where I required painkillers or anesthetic. But when I had my wisdom teeth removed, and I had two of them removed, which were all I had. A little extra lore drop. But I was on Vicodin over that time because they had to drill into the bone. It was, it was a bad one. And I would not be able to tell you what Vicodin feels like. My only memory of the time was overwhelming nausea. And also there was a lot of blood. Just all the time. So much bl- Maybe it was blood magic. But now we know. Blood magic feels like Vicodin, which feels like nausea.
1: And maybe it feels like a bee buzzing in the back of your head or a drill buzzing in the back of your mouth. Oh, it's dental work. Blood magic is an analogy for dental work. That makes sense. But uh, Kat starts to get some of her memory back. She remembers uh, the instructors getting the company to assemble in front of a large stone tablet um, and do a little bit of bloodletting all they were told is that this was meant to recreate a, a fog of war for the coming battle and then she has no memory from that point till now and this is pgte just by nature of sort of drawing from the same pot uh, often has some elements that feel very much like a tabletop rpg session or or campaign and this is one of those I can I can easily see a GM who didn't have time to come up with anything more clever just say, yep, you're here, and there was a magic thing, so you forgot the last bit of time, and now you're here because this is where I want you.
0: Probably the last full session of TTRPG I ran was simultaneously a, you don't know how you got here, and, and it was all a dream, and it advanced the plot, and it was three years ago.
1: That's really strange, because the last full session of a TTRPG I ran had a you-don't-know-how-you-got-here moment as well. Also on the same note as the whole blood magic, the big fancy tablet, Does, did the did college really just do a massive ritual involving messing with the memories of about 500 people just to set up a test for students at a college?
0: Yeah.
1: I love Price. This is... It's so over the top. There's in Kahlo, if this kind of thing had happened, it'd be alright, we're gonna blindfold you and walk you out there, you know? Nope, here we're gonna do blood magic and make you forget hours of your life.
0: <laughs> and then we immediately see one of those many pieces of evidence that even though Rad Company is the worst company, it has some of the best people. They wake up, Catherine speaks with Hakram trying to figure out what's going on, they remember the tablet, and already, boom. Lieutenant Pickler walks up to them, stride unhurried. In her hand, she held a rolled up leather scroll with a broken seal. She, while everyone else is trying to figure out what's going on, Pickler woke up, found a scroll, opens it immediately, interprets it, and brings word to her commanding officer.
1: Pickler's good. Well, she's got to build up some goodwill because she's about to uh, make a few mistakes in the next couple of chapters. so this is this is just her making sure that she's valued to be beheaded or whatever when she messes up.
0: That's what the dream was talking
1: about. Ah. Uh.
0: Except it's not Cat's head; it's Pickler's head. Luckily, since they really though, since Pickler brings the word so fast, since Cat and Hockram are there to get the company moving fast, I think we do at least have the advantage of an early start. And this joy will not be undercut in the next chapter. Don't worry about it. Come back next week.
1: We get Please. a little bit of, <laughs> we get a little bit of information about the setting for this battle. Uh, there's a canyon. Uh, that is going to be a, a feature in a major way in sort of the layout, how, how people can fortify and where troops can go. There's a forest nearby. Uh, there's some open badlands. And in noticing the uh, badlands that are sort of this labyrinth of hills and depressions, Kat says, If one of the companies isn't setting up fortifications somewhere in there as of this moment, I'll eat my helmet. I know that this isn't normally in their diet, but if anybody could eat a helmet, it would be an orc. I think this is just more evidence that we know Cat's parentage. Jorah. Excuse me? Jorah. Dwarith. Ah.
0: <laughs> yes. I said the same letters. You did. Also, wow. Uh, I hadn't even noticed that, but it really is starting to become an unassailable amount of evidence. Uh, and speaking of that which is unassailable, you know who is un-unassailable? That was two uns for the math heads out there. (laughs) Akram Akram leans over Kat's shoulder to take a look at the map they have with almost insulting ease because Catherine is, as we know, a short queen, not yet coronated. And very quickly he says, we have the worst starting position. And this is interesting to me because only their starting position is marked. So he looks at a map and in all the area he says, well, This is the worst starting position. Everyone else is in a better starting position somewhere else on the map. I'm curious how he knows. Is there a such stock of starting positions, which seems possibly a little too predictable? Is it just that they're in the worst possible place on the whole map? What what gives him the right?
1: I mean, I'm sure there's a little bit of interpretation going on here, guessing or assuming that No two companies are going to start right on top of each other. So if you take the region that they started in compared to any similar sized region, they have the worst one, I guess. Or just the fact that if you look at anywhere else on the map, how close you would be to, since this is what they're talking about, fortifiable ground. They're just not in that kind of position at all. You know, maybe they're in the tide for worst position, but regardless... The important thing here is, yeah, Rat Company's got the worst position. The first example we see maybe of Aris stacking the deck a little bit.
0: First one you notice, And first one I noticed until read the next chapter, but we're not there yet. Uh, I also do think it's interesting that there are plainly worse positions to start in. Not surprised terribly, but I think it's interesting that, I think it's interesting, I think it's worth noting that the war games, particularly the five-way war game, does not subscribe to some sort of theory of equal opportunity. It's fun.
1: Potentially, it normally would or there would be some kind of extra challenge layered on if you were in one of the more difficult positions but I have a feeling this one has been skewed slightly to make sure that the normal I don't know, the normal policies aren't exactly functioning the way they they should.
0: Sneak attack! It's deicide and applied blasphemy!
1: Deicide and Applied Blasphemy is our segment where we discuss comments and questions from you, our dear listeners. We have falsely assumed the thrones of your gods, and we invite you in this segment to challenge us for the mantles. You will not succeed, and we will continue on, unceasing and unerring.
0: Today's Deicide and Applied Blasphemy comes to us from our favorite listener, Dolahan, who writes in to tell us that we may have overlooked a valuable scenario when we critiqued the practicality of a five-way battle royale melee in the War College. We rightly noted that this is a very uncommon form of battle in wars between states. But Delahan tells us that she sees something we may have neglected to mention because we did not think of it. It is a niche case, they write, except when you have to fight four other high seats to climb the tower so before black came around i'd imagine it was useful training for the highborn officers
1: this is this is great insight uh we talked about it i was especially hard on the idea of this five-way being utterly unthinkable on a battlefield true on a modern battlefield this is uh, like i said fantastic insight into the history of the college and the the days before Black came along and made everything much more sensible. This is this is great. Uh, good good context to keep in mind as we look at other college things. That it's been around for long enough that many of the traditions predate Black and his practical guide to armies.
0: Thankfully, now that the reign of militia has come, there will be no more attempts to seize the tower. It will stand, uncracking, unclimbed, and unvanquished.
1: And like the tower, we stand unvanquished following this frankly enlightening bout of deicide and applied blasphemy.
0: Do you, like Dullahan, seek to claim our mantles?
1: If so, reach out to us with comments, questions, corrections, brilliant pieces of historical context that we just overlooked entirely on our Twitter at TheLongPrice or at our email
0: TheLongPrice at gmail.com or scry us.
1: So, do you speak Latin? Uh, not particularly. Is that my, <laughs> my lead-in? Yep. We uh, we get a little bit of a, a discussion back and forth on whether to move or camp down, um, and Hawker mentions that they're carrying enough sudis to uh, make a fortified camp where they are. Uh, this is cool. Just little side note, that's uh, Latin for steak, roughly. The wooden thing, not the meat thing. Um, travel of them are Orc. They carry
0: their stakes and their companions.
1: Right, exactly. <laughs> um, and this was a practice of the Roman legions as well. At a certain point, as they every soldier would be required to carry a bundle of stakes that they would bring with them uh, to be able to set up field fortifications. And they're neat little double-sided spikes, more or less. They could be hammered in, spike side down, while still presenting a spike to the enemy. And you could tie them together to create. Cavalry obstacles, and you could make walls with them. Um, it's cool. They've just another one of those like direct lifts from the Roman military machine to the the one, or sorry, the Mitsin military machine um, that we get to see. Just a, a a cool thing that really for anybody who knows about Roman military history, you you see this sentence and you get to have a little bit more insight into the actual. Uh, function, day-to-day functioning and strategic planning of the the legions. It's, it's cool. These little I'm details are a tran- lot of fun.
0: Extremely. I'm going to transition from this point, but I'm going to do it in a moment, so just hold on to this. And Catherine gets them moving so that they can meet up with Morak, whom she has apparently, with whom she has apparently thrown in her lot. And Hakram is doubtful that they can trust him, because Speaking of long stakes hmm.
1: Morok is Blackspear Clan. Um, doesn't really mean much to us, except that uh, this is Hawkram responding to or or positing that we can't trust Morok. He's Blackspear Clan, Kylo. They've never made a pact they didn't break. Couple things there. First and foremost, Hawkram knew what Kat was doing, at least roughly. Why is this detail coming out? for the first time now on the battlefield. Seems like that may have been a useful piece of information for Kat to have going into the meeting with Morok, but what do I know? And second, geez, Hakim, 100% chance that's not perfectly accurate. What is this, like, weird, hey, I, I know this rumor, the The reputation these guys have is that every single one of them constantly lies about everything and <laughs> I don't know. Saying, hey, they've got a reputation for being untrustworthy is one thing. This is just saying there's zero chance you can trust anybody from this clan ever. It's a weird uh, weird stance for Hawkman to take. And
0: Catherine begins to admit to her plan. She says she wouldn't trust him with a handful of coppers, indicating that something might be up here. But as she does so, she acknowledges that she's got a problem with her plan, which is that it's got many steps. And every step is a chance for the rest of the steps to be failing because that step failed. And when that step fails, everything fails because it's not fail safe. It just collapsed.
1: And we get a little, a little interesting thing here where she says, when it collapses, it usually falls on your head because that's the way villains' luck went. Specifically villains here. Not people, not the bad guys, not heroes, not any named villains. And... I think this sheds a little light on the difference between heroes and villains in a in a purely practical sense. We see this in other places throughout the story, so this isn't based only on this one, you know, four-word, five-word phrase she says here. But um, villains in general are individually incredibly powerful because they have to be a roughly even match for a band of five heroes coming against them, or... Uh, uh to be alone a threat to a kingdom uh, that kind of thing but when villains lose they lose really hard is what we're kind of getting here that typically uh, the villains losing means that they are completely removed from power not just like scared off you know if the heroes that attack the villain and lose some of them probably escape if the villain is attacked and loses they're just done they it, it's over and especially if it's, you know, something of their own doing, which is what Kat's talking about here. So that's that's interesting that we kind of get this idea that it's easier for creation maybe to side against villains. They're they're individually powerful. They've been given all this extra power because of who they are. But because of that extra power, when things go against them, when that power no longer is enough, it's easier for creation to tip the scales back the other way because we often see this where... uh, People who are aware of how name lore works will say, you know, if you tip the scales one way, then it's easier to tip them back the other way in response. And so I, I think that's just a, an interesting example of that in a self-inflicted sort of way.
0: The way it seems to all balance out right now it seems so fair then. You know, some benefits, but they bring some risks with them. But then when we start getting heroes' perspectives later on, it turns out it's just broken. Darn heroes. yeah we can't dwell here long they've got to get moving they have to go double time if they want to win to this they're going to have to pay the long price for it
1: yeah we get the a little mention of the long price which is uh, particularly near and dear to our hearts but also just a fun callow thing that shows up now and again the idea that it's the price you keep paying for it. it's paying unpleasant dues down the line for something now uh the the slow burn of revenge being paid back. It's cool that we get the actual explicit description of it here. And as Cat notes, it's interesting that the Precy at large don't know the term, despite the constant interaction with Callow. It seems like the kind of thing that Callow would be always talking about in you know post war negotiations or something.
0: Yeah, though I can say that there's some sort of satiation with it. I know I'm often talking about thelongprice at gmail.com where you can email us if you have any questions, comments, or concerns or our Twitter at thelongprice. And there's a sort of semantic satiation there. But do check this out. Is Catherine Foundling the smartest person to ever live? No. Right. She is not. However, she says something astoundingly absurd. Snatcher's company was in some ways the least dangerous as almost half his forces were goblins. How on earth would that be the least dangerous? Sure. A goblin's not going to stand up to a human, not going to stand up to an orc, not going to stand up to a tenth of ogres in one-on-one combat. But they're nasty, clever, they see in the dark, and they run like a pack of spiders. Goblins are nightmares compared to anything else in these battles. Even ogres are just what they are. They're a sublime immensity. But if there are goblins around, anything could happen. What do you mean they're in some ways the least dangerous? You're not going to fight them one-on-one.
1: that's yeah i think that's exactly it is in cat's mind if you can pin snatcher you win you're going to beat him in a straight fight which she even mentioned shield wall against shield wall even my soldiers would wreck them also the word even in there yeah the word even in there is doing a lot of heavy lifting cat come on these are your soldiers these are your your folks have a little bit of confidence in them but the idea of course is that snatcher will not let that happen and Everybody knows that. They're going into this battle. That's why Wolf is, Wolf Company is so concerned with Snatcher. They are going to be, the longer you let them dig in, the harder they will be to root out because they are goblins fortifying an area led by a goblin. This is, they're terrifying. Got to run in there and smash them up a little bit with ogres or uh, heavy infantry or other goblins, I guess. We'll have to see what Kat ends up doing, but you got to do something.
0: I don't think she has a chance. But that's Fox Company under Snatcher. Wolf Company is also kind of scary sometimes.
1: Yeah, we get we're getting sort of a, a another layer of breakdown and differences between all the companies here. Wolf Company uh, borrows from Tugreb tactics. They have mobility at the highest. They have almost no heavies, um, which is a distinction within the legions um, that I find interesting. The the average legionary, the regulars, are explicitly heavy infantry. They are. Close formations, armored, large shields get up close with a shield wall and fight. That's heavy infantry. But then they have a a, a specific class of this heavy infantry that are just the heavies, and they have better armor and, uh, I don't know, probably bigger and stronger, generally speaking. Um, so I'm wondering if the legions have... I'm wondering if uh, uh, Wolf Company specifically just has an overabundance of scouts like lighter infantry or sappers even not in the same way that snatchers does but using them more for uh mobility rather than uh, the ability to create fortifications because they're talking about uh, this putting mobility highest the regular legions the regulars that you'd have in place of the heavies aren't going to be that mobile they're still formation based heavy armor wearing foot soldiers uh so i'm i'm curious exactly what wolf company's makeup is and at least for the present we don't know the specific details other than almost no heavies
0: now they're somehow fast and useful Morak goes the opposite direction everything but his tenth of mages are heavies and it's not just heavies per se he's sapless but he's got a tenth of ogres which i just want to read are Fifteen feet tall and clad in a small mountain of steel. In the Hebrew Bible, there's a well-known story of David and Goliath, the little boy who would be king with a sling, taking on quite possibly the most famous giant in world history. Goliath doesn't quite scrape ten feet. Ogres are fifteen feet tall.
1: Fifteen feet tall and unlike most real-world present giants, Unbelievably strong, since they are clad in a small mountain of steel. They are living battering rams using massive war hammers. These things are terrifying. And also they're used... Also they're present at the college. They are big enough to be swinging massive... These are training exercises. I feel like one of these hammers would just straight up kill a guy. Am I wrong? Well, if I gave you the choice of being thrown off a 30-foot wall, or being smashed with a hammer...
0: (laughs) It's kind of a Sophie's Catch-22,
1: right? It truly is. So, you know... The, the ogres, on top of just being big and strong and tough and lethal, they also seem to have, I would wager, a bigger advantage here in the games, in the college, than they would on their normal battlefield. Non-lethal measures that work against a human or an orc aren't going to do anything to something that's 15 feet tall and strong enough to be clad in a mountain of steel. I don't know, it... It's, I'm not saying they're invincible. I'm saying if you're using blunted blades and hitting these guys with the strength of a human arm, they're not going to feel that. The fireballs that mostly just knock humans around are not going to do anything to the ogres. And if you don't have access to the highly lethal explosives and artillery and things like that, I, I, don't, know, <laughs> I don't know what you're supposed to do against a, a tenth of them. Listeners, you
0: can't see my co-host right now, but when he said non-lethal, You can imagine the giant air quotes.
1: (laughs) Yes, of course.
0: I'm assuming. Oh, yeah. Meanwhile, Juniper. Well, let's see. We've seen Snatcher with his horrifying goblin force. We've seen Aisha coming out of nowhere instantly. We've seen Morak with giants. Just straight up giants, but not in the in-world term. Because that would be... Uh, But so what's Juniper got up her sleeve? What kind of horrible, monstrous advantage is keeping her at the top?
1: Well... First company is, according to Kat, an all-rounder. They have the traditional makeup. It's one line of sappers, one line of mages, two regulars, and one line of heavies. A nice balanced makeup that gives you a large tool set, but no specialty.
0: And that goes to show how effective the Legion standard that Black likely perfected, if not invented, if not pioneered, really is. Probably anyone using that couldn't do too badly.
1: And then the next paragraph starts with the four words, the same as us. Turns out Rat Company uses this makeup as well.
0: So apparently this composition is something that can go terribly wrong if it's not in the hands of Juniper the Hellhound or Grem, One-Eye.
1: It makes sense. Cat kind of describes it as if you have this makeup, you have no major strength, no weak point, but having no huge weakness isn't enough to win against somebody who knows what they're doing and this is cool because uh as we learn a bit more about Ratface in this and the next chapter um one of cat's biggest complaints about him or maybe not complaints one of cat's biggest criticisms about his leadership style is that he in battle uh is very conservative he he doesn't take big risks and so the fact that he does this that he doesn't wing to one side to, to strengthen a certain uh skill set or focus anywhere it makes perfect sense he both modeled after juniper because she's really good and also didn't want to do anything that would leave him with a glaring weakness so it's cool to see the the line here the direct line between what we learned about Ratface and what we were told a few chapters ago with how uh a rat company works
0: very in this description they do a lot of moving and they get near the canyon and Ratface proves his worth with his remarkable strategizing we should back further away from the canyon or else go entirely into it
1: and Pickler is there to immediately veto that because according to her she could bring that bring that thing down on our heads with an hour's work and so could most of the other companies great you can knock down a, a canyon uh, but Pickler this kills the companies this is an extraordinarily lethal thing you're describing you're talking about dropping a canyon on people i understand that this is the war games and people die but this feels like it's just killing a hundred people
0: but that would defeat the company
1: a fair point they wagered
0: points on this
1: okay you're right if it's for points
0: i questioned the order of spell learning back in the last battle probably episode where you met what's her name uh well we speak to what's her name now to see how far she can shoot a fireball and the redhead blinked in surprise. Every mage cadet had to be able to cast two spells by the end of their first year. Basic field healing and a standardized fireball. It sounds like they're equal priority. These are the tackle and growl of the mage core for you, Pokemon fan. Older years learned more advanced healing, a few different defensive spells, and the most talented were even taught to scry. But those two basic spells were the bread and butter of cadet majory. Nifty. That's all.
1: Yeah, I mean it's a little bit of insight into magic in general and magic within the legions. Always good to always good to find little uh little notes like that for sure. So
0: Catherine finds out how far what's her name can shoot a fireball, how strong it can be, blah blah blah. She can shoot up five hundred feet if there's no real power left behind it to even fry a bird. And Catherine's immediate response is simply good. Send up three in a row. I love her.
1: <laughs> and this
0: is just such a bad choice like yeah. at least discuss the plan for a moment <laughs> with people what if Killian had said oh every mage is trained to be able to get it to 25 feet every time we can extend it to 40 feet if we want that's our limit I know Catherine doesn't know I know she does not
1: know I'm sure she would come up with another solution right but okay put Pickler in a catapult and yeah exactly well Robert sharpest... you mean Robert yeah yeah
0: I apologize have Pickler put Robert in a catapult
1: there it is it's, uh, it's great because she says this and like, uh, what's her name? The rest of the officers are just gobsmacked by this. There's a moment of utter silence. Captain Ratface uh, j- chimes in with with all due respect that, and Hickler comes in and, well, this will tell everybody where we are. And <laughs> it's, uh, first of all, yeah, it's kind of weird that Kat's going into battle without talking to her officers at all. But on the second hand, they're all acting like Kat just spurred the moment. was like, hey, let's tell everybody where we are. I don't know why. I'm just going to do it. Like, she just came up with this plan on the fly, just on a lark. Let's shoot fireballs in the sky. This specific number. Clearly, she knows what she's doing. Instead of saying, hey, that'll tell people we're here, obviously, you'd expect the first question to be, okay, what's the plan? Nope! And this is why Rat Company cannot win without Cat.
0: To be fair, while she has certainly earned their respect, I don't think she's terribly earned trust at this point. She, when all is said and done, she won through a surprise trick she won't be able to quite pull again. And she's pretty untried still. Maybe she is? Also, this is praise. Now that they know she has a name, they have less reason to trust that she is entirely stable.
1: That's true. You'd still expect they would have enough trust to assume there is some kind of plan, even if it's a bad one. Also, you said she wouldn't be able to pull that same trick again. Uh, there's a canyon, that means hills, and trees. Who knows? Maybe she has to jump over a log again. They could come up.
0: Pipe moroc, but... and he's at the top of the hill and starts rolling ogres down at them.
1: Exactly. But what uh, the fear is by you know, for Pickler and Ratface and the rest of the officers here is that uh, Pat is going to lose them and I'm reading this correctly, I assure you, 84 points in this battle. If you recall, Rat Company is uh, negative currently, but a, at a negative 42. So they are wagering twice the deficit that they have that they will win this. That is a lot of points, and everybody's pretty worried about that.
0: I would like to remind everyone as well that members of their company are going to die here, and points are pertent.
1: Everything's made up.
0: Hmm. Welcome to Prates, where everything's messed up and the points all matter.
1: <laughs> sure.
0: Prates does kind of feel like an evil improv game or Mad Libs gone wrong.
1: <laughs> That's true, and we've got uh, noun tapirs that eat other noun people. Okay.
0: In case these references that are playing to an American viewpoint are lost, to anyone. Mad Libs is the game where you fill in blanks in a pre-written text that you haven't read yet with parts of speech. People prompt, give me an adjective, give me a noun, give me an adverb. And then they fill in the blank and then read the text. And it's funny because the words don't fit well. And where everything's made up and the points don't matter, it's a reference to the British and later American and later Australian uh, television show, Whose Line Is It Anyway?, which has versions now in which has or has had versions in very many places on Earth, but the tagline may have changed. And I really like the Belgian version because it's called Unforeseen Circumstances. On forzina omstandigheden, if I can guess my way through. Piccler is upset at this point loss because she doesn't want to get posted in Thalassina with the 13th to break a bickering merchant. I think that's cool. This tells us a bit about where the Empire is right now. They've got a legion stationed in their port trade city because of its importance and because there's nothing else going on that requires the full strength of the legions no big calwin uprising yet no crusade no what have you cool
1: and it's the boring posting which for some people would be a selling point but for a goblin not so much but there's this all this byplay, and cat cuts in by speaking to her officers enough i spoke and they went still as statues this isn't the highest assembly, and you aren't pro princes. She speaks to her officers. I I don't know, there's there's a a layer of I don't know, betrayal of trust, of of not treating them like adults. Like I feel as though a shouted enough would be good enough, but maybe the speaking is just built into wielding your authority as a named individual. She's Saying, I have authority over you, and I'm telling you to stop, and creation just sort of agrees that they should obey her, I guess? I don't know. It it feels like a a strange thing to throw out at your officers and friends.
0: Just a reminder of what she is. I was going to say who, but no what.
1: Hmm. Yeah, fair enough.
0: But I agree entirely. Also, having read this, that's awesome, that reference. This isn't the highest assembly, and you aren't Prosper princes. I feel that now. We struggle along with my future wife, Cordelia Hasenbach for so <laughs> long. Yeah, that's that's such a nice reference. Good job, Catherine. That is something to be mocked in comparison. As everyone knows, I advocate strong monocephalic governments.
1: One side note before we move on. Uh, we have sort of talked about the formatting of the text itself uh, in a couple different places, especially as it relates to uh, name things. You know, it's particularly relevant for this work because of how meta so many of the concepts are. Uh, in this instance, Cat speaks, and uh, the word that she speaks is enough, and it is italicized. Um, I think that we are probably just early enough that the specific formatting for how speaking is going to work in the story hasn't just hasn't been nailed down yet. Would be my guess, uh, since this is explicitly speaking. But just a note: it's italicized in the text.
0: And. After the prohibition wears off, everyone gives shaky nods, and what's-her-name eyes Catherine warily. Quote, she was probably the only one with enough arcane education to understand how I'd managed." This isn't witchcraft. This isn't majory. This is name stuff, right? Do I not get it? Did, someone else might ask, EE not get it at the time? Or, does Catherine just not really get it yet?
1: There may be some overlap, just the idea of like, ah, it's a thing normal people can't do. Maybe there's some training there. And maybe an um, understanding of the of magic lets Killian know, hey, the reason we couldn't talk was we were forced into that rather than it was a fear response or something. Because it's, as it's described, all of their throats clench up or whatever. That could very well just be, I got really scared in that moment and that's what everybody assumes. I don't know. It is. It is... An, uh, an interesting little line there, for sure. But Cat um, commands that they all follow the order she's giving without explaining anything. And Hakram uh, approaches to say, You're playing your cards pretty close to the chest, Callow. Which is classic Cat. And it's it's very much... Cat likes to be in sort of a heist movie where... There's a plan being followed and only she knows it and neither the audience nor the other people involved know the full plan and it's revealed to them as it's necessary or moments after it's necessary because there's no time to explain. This is classic Cat and it keeps working out for her somehow. She's that good at planning ahead despite how frequently she's just, you know, the brute force lady.
0: She's inherited a lot from her father, even before he becomes her father. Catherine responds with an apparent non-sequitur? I had a dream this morning, I told him instead of a true reply. Even though that is true. But I guess it's not a true reply, never mind. I follow now. I had a dream this morning, I told him. A drama queen. That is just calculated to disconcert, you know?
1: <laughs> it's, it's, if this were a movie, they'd be standing with Hawkram with the camera, you know, Facing Kat's side profile with Hawkram just visible behind her, looking at her while she stares into the middle distance and delivers this line like she's gearing up for a speech. She is dramatic through and through. And stubborn. They take rest before dawn, and Catherine
0: says she somehow managed to miss a rock under her bedroll. And, you know, when you're lying in your bedroll and you've got a rock in your back, you act, don't you? But for Catherine, I'd missed a rock under my bedroll. And it had dug into my back the whole time so it was with a bruised back that i put my armor on after robert woke me huh it does come out robert (laughs) well i mean
1: you know how you fall asleep you think you're comfortable you wake up the next morning and you can't get out of bed because your back hurts so much and you realize you slept wrong it's that she didn't realize she was sleeping wrong until she woke up
0: okay adding to my list of superpowers i don't wake up with a sore back you really need to have something more relatable to me
1: i thought that was just like normal human existence at this point
0: I don't have back pain.
1: No, no brain freeze, no back pain. Do you experience pain?
0: It'd be nice to feel (laughs) some. Every recording session. Very good. Every time I open the podcast email and find no one wrote in the long price at gmail.com.
1: These are all great responses. I think we found our post credit scene. Got any others in you or should we move on?
0: Whenever I have to think about the grill
1: (laughs) (laughs) There it is. Anyway. (laughs) Um, uh, Robert swings is, has swung by to wake Cat up, deliver a message, and then is sort of just hanging out and making some comments. Cat says, "Don't you have things to do, Sergeant?" And he responds, "Eh, nothing urgent." His ability to take a hint and then just turn around and throw it right in the trash can is absolutely astounding. He's well aware at the hint uh, of what this hint is and does not. Care, Robert is the best, which is good. It, it's good that he's the best because Cat really doesn't uh, have a lot of room for mistakes, or you know, at least as long as the as long as the mistakes don't happen more than once.
0: She's very reasonable right now. For once, she says, "I know I'm asking the company to take a lot on faith. I'm not going to hold grudges uh-huh, over a moment of doubt as long as it doesn't happen again." Which is very rational in her position because it would be foolish to have an issue with them having doubt in what's ultimately an extremely reasonable circumstance to doubt, but it's also unreasonable for her to accept having to put up with doubt over and over because she's going to keep proving herself.
1: Yeah, those doubts do disappear pretty swiftly, I think. It, this is this is Catherine Foundling we're talking about. Of course, Robert doesn't take this... Uh, Admission of of, of forgiveness uh, as a as a good thing. Fully, he refers to it as becoming as coming from Cat's soft Calvin upbringing, and he goes on to say, "No wonder you lot got conquered." <laughs> this is Robert, of course, but geez, man, that is a that is a targeted blow. That is a rough one.
0: And in response. Catherine says, I flipped him the finger, and he scuttled off after a horribly sloppy salute. Inexplicably, I was now in a better mood. We all are, Catherine. But I just find it (laughs) interesting. She flipped him the finger. We're seeing where certain gestural language is preserved between English-speaking context, at least, and this world.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that one makes a fair bit of sense, since that particular gesture has its origins, depending on who you ask, in a number of things that are all pretty, I don't know, universal in the sense that they easily apply to Kalernia as much as they do to our world, especially since part of Kalernia, Kalo, is pretty darn Western European. But it is cool to see, yeah.
0: But Morak starts coming and he's in a weird order.
1: He is. Uh, We get that he has his Ogre Tenth directly behind his first line, and that is not the standard practice. And I don't know, I'm curious what is. I, I don't really have a whole lot to say here, I'm just curious what the standard practice is if you have ogres. Do they lead because they're very tough? Are they, do, do they go in the back so that you can pin the enemy and have the ogres finish things up? Are they supposed to be on the flanks? I don't know. It, it They're a weird piece of the puzzle in a, a battlefield and seeing them behind 20 people, you know, or two rows of 10 people or whatever, however this actually functions, it being odd enough to comment on is it's interesting. I We see
0: in the next chapter that Catherine's really planning on having them be first, but it's mm-hmm. able to compensate for them not being first. Uh,
1: almost compensate.
0: Okay. We'll put a spoiler in the podcast. Fine. Uh,
1: another little bit of uh, military history thing that's interesting to me is um, Killian's line is, of course, the mage line for uh, Rat Company, and we find out that a mage line is made up of a tenth of mages and a tenth of soldiers bearing oversized shields um sort of mobile cover this was a real practice especially in um uh like medieval europe uh, these giant shields called pavises that were used for crossbowmen uh, especially in siege warfare you'd have these giant shields you could carry forward and you'd often have teams of two one person holding a shield the other person behind it so you could shoot a crossbow, duck down behind this big piece of wood to reload your crossbow. It makes sense when you have a weapon that can only shoot once every minute or whatever. Um, It's cool to see that that's being applied to mages here, even though the legions have specific crossbow soldiers, people wielding crossbows that don't necessarily have this as far as we can tell. Um, We don't know for sure, I don't think, or specifically how long... The fireball takes to cast, but the I don't think the reloading aspect is really what this is as much as I doubt the mage line has shields, and so you double up on the size of the shield of somebody to protect you, so you have a you have some kind of protection. It, it's just it's cool to see that the pavise show up here. I I just thought that was neat.
0: That's amazing. Thank you. And then we end with just classic Catherine. She says, "It'd be hypocritical of me to get angry about him betraying us." I'm She's very calm here. She's very cool. She's a cool cat. That's a pun.
1: And it makes sense that she's calm. She either expected this or wasn't overly concerned about it, since as she uh, finishes the chapter by announcing, I betrayed him first. The specifics of the betrayal, as far as we know now, are that Wolf Company is charging into Morok's flank, but we will definitely get a little bit more information next chapter, and... For all of us, next episode, because that is all the time we have for this one today. Join us next week on Podcast Guys Talking to Radic as We discuss. Large lads. Red mads. And wait, did Cat just punch an ogre? Whoa. Wade in their blood.
0: guys talking erratic erratic is a fan-made podcast discussing erratic arata's a practical guide to evil check out the full serial at practical guide to evil.wordpress.com intro music for this episode was cradle of your soul by lemon music studio but um tish was rimshot joke funny by deleted user 7146007 music for the epigraph was unexplained mystery intro slash outro by exceptional 3d erotic backing track with Moment by Serge Quadrado. Outdoor music which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine is Price of Freedom by Daddy S Music. The music is provided by the generous license of Pixabay.com. Go to support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast follow us on Twitter at the Long Price. Do you have questions, comments, contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Email us at TheLongPrice at gmail.com. If you'd like to materially support our work, find our Patreon at patreon.com p-g-t-e-e. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name, receive personalized stories and art, or even join a pgte p-g-t-e-inspired RPG. We implore you don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make with this all possible. Special thanks to our patron and liege, always the claimant, never the named, as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week, Chapter 24, Aisha's Plan.